Amen. As you come back, it was pointed out to me that we have uh, the wrong dates on this card. I think we had the right dates last week, but we have the wrong dates for markout dates on your volunteer card. So um, go ahead and fill this out, and we'll have Angie, our administrative assistant, contact you to find out your blackout dates, or you can write them down uh, in the requests part or information part, um, or you can just go online. In your bulletin, you'll see there's a link. You can go online and sign up for where you'd like to volunteer online. Uh, if you would do that sometime today, that would be helpful for us because they have to start figuring out the master schedule, which takes a lot of effort to do. So um, sorry about that. Uh, just in uh, light of um, the elections coming this Tuesday, I'd like just to start by opening in prayer for our country and also for our hearts as we turn to God's word. So let's pray together. Lord God, we come to you today, and we want to lift up to you our governing officials, Lord, those that you call us to pray for, those you call us to honor, Lord God. Lord, we pray for those who are in office today and who are going to be in office in the weeks and months to come, Lord God. Lord, we pray that you would give them your heart for people, Lord. Pray that they would be politicians that look not to their own interests, but to the interests of others. That they would be politicians that look to care for the needy, for the poor, for the orphan, for the widow. God, pray that you would give them wisdom and discernment beyond their years, Lord. God, we pray for the politicians of our country, presidents and governors and mayors, Lord. God, pray that you would put the fear of God in them, that they would rule righteously and justly, God, and that their heart would be moved towards mercy and towards love. Lord God, as we approach this Tuesday to vote and to select those that would be over us, God, pray that we could go with a great confidence, Lord, that you are in charge of all things. And yet, take this sacred duty to heart, Lord. God, we pray that your spirit would guide and direct us, Lord. You say that if we pursue you for wisdom, you will give it to us generously. And so, Lord, pray that you would give us wisdom to show us, Lord, who we should vote for, that this country may glorify you in the way that it seeks to carry out the things that you are most passionate about. And so we pray for that, Lord. God, as we turn to your word, we pray that you would open our hearts, God, to hear and to understand and to know the good things that you have for us today, Lord. Teach us and lead us, Lord, and help us see the great hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Have you ever felt like your life was falling apart right in front of your eyes? I can think of several occasions in my life. One of those occasions was my freshman year of college. I moved out of my house to another city two hours away. Everything was new. Everything was different. It was weird. I was homesick. I joined a fraternity house, and there was pledgeship, which causes a lot of heartache uh, for reasons I probably can't share from the pulpit. Um, but during that time, I was also... Um, I was also playing rugby, and I crushed my shoulder during that time. My parents were going through a divorce, and seeing the pain that was coming out of that was very difficult. And to make things worse, although I was trying very hard at school, I was failing out. 
I finished my first semester with a 1.4 GPA. And so my life was falling apart. I was freaking out. What is going to happen? What am I going to be doing the rest of my life? As your pastor, I get the opportunity to meet with you in those sacred moments when you feel like your life is falling apart. Over just the past month or maybe two, I have talked and prayed with some of you who have grieved over the loss of a child. Those who are going through a painful divorce that you do not want. I've been with those who are haunted by times that you've been violated by strangers. I've sat and talked with you as we discussed the way that your parents have betrayed you in ways that are unmentionable. Those of you that are struggling with chronic illness and disability and pain, those battling against PTSD and mental illness, those who are enslaved to chronic, habitual, self-destructive sin, this is just normal life for me. Normal life to sit with you and to, to pray and to grieve and to seek God with you. You know, I find it sadly laughable when Someone comes to me and says, everyone else seems to have their life together except for me. And I'm thinking, oh, if you only knew. Friends, what is troubling your heart today? What is keeping you awake at night? What is making you anxious? What is taking up space in your head? What is leading you to despair? In today's passage, Jesus is addressing the apostles whose life is now falling apart in front of them, in front of their very eyes. If you remember, the apostles left everything. They left jobs, they left homes, they left family to go and follow Jesus. And now Jesus has come to Jerusalem for the great Passover. And they had this great hope and expectation that Jesus is going to clear out Jerusalem of the Roman Empire and that he's going to reestablish the Davidic kingdom. And so they come with great excitement. And Jesus, their great hope, their Savior, their Lord says, I'm going away. And where I'm going, you can't come with me yet. You can imagine how angry they must have felt. Jesus, no, this isn't the way it goes. Why did I leave everything for you? Why did I leave my house and my family to follow you? If all you're going to do is just go away, this isn't how it works. Let's talk about this. They're angry. They're feeling abandoned and hopeless. And yet in the midst of this, in the midst of this hopeless abandonment feeling, Jesus has the audacity to say, let not your hearts be troubled. That is the same word that he speaks to us today. In the midst of life, in the midst of tragedy and hardship, Jesus is saying, let not your hearts be troubled. If you would, please open up to John chapter 13. We will be looking at verses 36 through chapter 14, verse 6 today. It is page 900 in the red Bible, page 1070 in the large print uh, blue Bible. Last week, we looked at what has been called the beginning of Jesus' farewell discourse. It starts at the end of John chapter 13 and goes all the way through John chapter 17. It starts right after Judas leaves that, that upper room to go and start in motion Jesus' betrayal. Jesus focuses in on the 11 apostles that are left. 
and he communicates those things which are most precious to him in this farewell address. Last week, Jesus started this farewell address by giving his disciples, including us today, a focus on God's glory at the cross, a future certain hope which we'll dive into more today, and a new old commandment to love one another. And that brings us to the passage today. So if you would follow along as I read out loud John 13, starting in verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Lord, we come this morning not leaving at our burdens at the door, but bringing them in here before the cross, bringing them in here before you, Lord God. Lord, I know there are people here who would say that this juncture in their life is maybe the most difficult part of their life that they have ever endured, that life does seem to be falling apart right in front of their eyes, Lord. And yet for those here who maybe say all is well, we know the day is coming. We know the day is coming where there will be hardships and there will be trials. And so God, pray that you would comfort us from your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I knew that I had 24 hours to live, I'd probably be a little bit in panic mode. I'd probably gather my family around me and tell them how much I love them and kind of take care of the last details in this passage, Jesus knows he has a little less than 24 hours before he will be beaten and crucified, and yet he takes these final moments to comfort his disciples, to tell them, let not your hearts be troubled. This tells us a lot about our Savior, how focused he is on loving and caring for those that God has put around him. And so as he approaches, again, this awful thing of the cross, he gives them this great comfort. Let not your hearts be troubled. When Jesus says this, just to be clear, I don't think Jesus is minimizing our pain. I mean, if you, were, if you came to me and you were pouring out your heart and your life to me about how difficult things are, and I simply said, let not your heart be troubled, you'd probably say, Dan's pretty insensitive, right? He really doesn't care. He's not compassionate towards what I'm going through. And so I don't think Jesus is simply saying, turn your frown upside down, right? Or don't worry, be happy. 
Nor is Jesus saying that we should not grieve and mourn over the effects of a fallen world because we know Jesus grieved and mourned greatly over a fallen world. When Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, what Jesus is saying is that when your, fa- when your world is falling down around you, even in the face of death, which was his situation, that we must not be overcome by despair. That we not, must not let anxiety dominate our life. That we must not grieve as those who have no hope. Whatever is weighing you down today, Jesus speaks into your suffering. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Now, how can Jesus say that? Jesus doesn't know what I'm going through, does he? See, the only reason Jesus can say, let not your hearts be troubled, is if Jesus knows something that we don't know. Or if he remembers something that we don't remember. Jesus can only say, let not your hearts be troubled, only if there is a hope that is more hopeful than our troubles that are so troubling. Does that make sense? Jesus can say, let not your hearts be troubled if there is a hope that is more hopeful than our troubles are troubling. And so here in this passage, Jesus gives us this great hope to cling to in the midst of the trials of life. This hope Jesus gives has a threefold aspect to it. Jesus tells us that we need not let our hearts be troubled because Jesus is the way, because Jesus is the truth, and because Jesus is the life. And so we'll unpack those three aspects of this great comfort that Christ gives to his disciples. First, we need not let our hearts be troubled because Jesus is the way. When Jesus says, I am the way, Jesus is reminding us that all of us are on a spiritual journey. And just as all journeys, there is a beginning and there is an end and there is an in-between. There is an origin, there is a destination, and there is a means of getting from the beginning to the end. For example, many of you, uh, your origin this morning was your house. Uh, Your means of getting here was your car. And your destination is here at church this morning. Jesus shows us throughout the Gospels that we too have a spiritual journey with an origin and a destination and a means getting between the two. And so I want to look at those briefly. First, the origin. What is the starting point of our spiritual journey? Well, Jesus tells us back in Luke 19, he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus says our spiritual origin is lostness, that we have run away from God that we have pursued sin, that we have pursued idols, and we have become lost in our sin so that we cannot find our way back to God, so that we cannot hike our way back to God. And so this is our origin. Our origin is one of lostness. And then Jesus points us here in this passage to our destination. Where are we going from our lostness? What place are we driven to? Verse 2, he says, in my father's house are many rooms. Talking about heaven, right? Our father who are in heaven. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Do you see how Jesus is seeking to de-trouble the disciples' heart with this great hope? Jesus points them past his death, past his resurrection, past his ascension into the heart of heaven. Jesus is encouraging them to lift their focus off of the current situation and set their attention on an everlasting joy that is to come. 
the hope of heaven. Jesus continues, and he tells us why heaven is so great. Why it is something to look forward to. Verse 3, Jesus says, And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. Not to heaven. He says, I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. You know, when I talk to people, a lot of times their hope of heaven is that it will be like a huge family reunion, that they'll get to see all their family and all their friends and celebrate being reunited. And certainly for those who die in the Lord, there is this great reunion in heaven. But what makes heaven so great is not that our family and friends will be there, but that the presence of God will be there. You see, heaven is not so much about a place as it is about a person. Heaven is where God dwells. It is the Father's house. It is where Jesus resides. In heaven, day after day, we get to commune with the God of the universe as our souls were created to do in a sin-free and trouble-free and a heartache-free new creation. Revelations 21 describes this new creation for us. John says, Then I saw new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And he says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be their God. That is our great hope of heaven, that we will dwell with God for all eternity. And then he continues, says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You know, one of the privileges of being a pastor is not only to walk with people through the most difficult aspects of life, but also the greatest celebrations in life. I remember one time I went to go visit a, a new family in the hospital who just had a baby boy. And the mom uh, had told me about how horrible the labor had been, how she had been in labor for four days. And for four days, she couldn't eat, she couldn't sleep. She was, she was in absolute misery. And so I asked her, I said, well, was it, was it worth it? And she goes, oh, absolutely. Well, why was it worth it? Because she got to hold her baby boy. You see, the destination for her was not a place, but it was a person. It was getting to be with her child. In the same way, as we walk through this life together, as we go through many trials, through much suffering, these are all the pains of childbirth, but we are headed to a new creation where we get to be with our Savior for all eternity. Jesus is constantly trying to take our eyes off of the current trials and situations and suffering of this world and set it upon the glory of heaven. And so what troubles your heart today? What leads you to despair? Whatever your trouble is, it is only momentary suffering, the pains of childbirth. God calls us to look through his binoculars, to look past our current present suffering into the glory of of heaven that we are bound for. And so on this spiritual journey, our origin is that we are lost, we are separated from God, our destination is heaven, to be with God for all eternity. 
But what is the path? How do we get there? What is the way? What is the means? Look at verse 4 with me. Jesus says, And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, it's so funny because throughout so much of the Gospels, Jesus is constantly showing the disciples that they really don't know what they think they know. And yet here, they say, we don't know. And Jesus is like, no, you actually do know. They know the way to heaven because the way to heaven is not a path. It is a person because the way to heaven is Jesus whom they know. Let me illustrate illustrate this way. Maybe after church, I invited you to come have lunch at my house, okay? Not all of you. We'll just pretend you and me, okay? And so I say, hey, come over to my house for lunch today. And you say, great, let's go. And you say, well, give me, the, give me the address, you know, so I can type it into my phone and get GPS or give me directions. And so you, you figured, you know what, I'm going to take my car or maybe you'll hike if you like the rain, whatever it is, and, and I'll make it to your house. And you're thinking, these are the directions I need to get to Dan's house. This is what Thomas is thinking of in this situation. Give me the directions, Lord. But if I invited you over for lunch and I said, you know what, I'm going to give you a ride. If you said, how do I get to your house? I would say, just, just go to the lower lot, look for the rusty old pickup truck with a Chevy symbol on the back and get in. That's it. Just get in and trust me. I will take you to where you need to go. I will take you to my house. In the same way, Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not going to give you directions. Like you have to walk this many old people across the street. You have to go to church this many times, say this many prayers, do all of these things, and then you'll get to heaven. Jesus says, I am the way to heaven. Believe in me, trust in me, dwell in me. You can't get there through your own power, through your own navigational abilities. You can only get to heaven through me, Jesus says. Jesus is not simply a teacher that says, let me show you the way to heaven. Jesus is the Savior who is the way to heaven. And so why should our hearts not be troubled in the midst of the trials of this world? Because Jesus is the way. He is the way from spiritual lostness back into the glorious presence of God for all eternity. Secondly, we need not let our hearts be troubled because Jesus is the truth. Look at verse 1 with me. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. And then it's implicit, rather, believe in God, believe also in me. So he's saying, don't be troubled in your hearts. Don't be driven to despair. Believe in God. Believe also in me, the Son of God. And so what is it that we're to believe about God the Father? What is it that we are to believe about God the Son that would keep us from being troubled in our souls? Well, we have kind of gone over it, but we'll do it again. Verse 2, he shows us what we need to believe about God the Father. Verse 2, he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. Friends, this is good news for us. It is good news that there are many rooms in the Father's house. There is room for all. There is room for you. It is not just for 144,000. It is for all who trust in Christ as their Savior. What are we to believe about Jesus that comforts our heart? He says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
This is the great comfort that we get at believing in Jesus, that Jesus has gone to unlock heaven for us to be with him forever. Jesus' truth claims get even a little more controversial. Look down to verse 6. Jesus said to him, Thomas, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Notice Jesus does not say, I am a way, a truth, and a life. But I am the way, singular, I am the truth, singular, and I am the life. Jesus is claiming his absolute authority over truth and absolute authority over access to God. Jesus tells us the truth about the Father, about heaven, and about the way to get there. This is an extremely offensive statement. And if it wasn't offensive enough, Jesus continues. He says, no one, let that sink in, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus claims to be the single solution to our spiritual lostness. Jesus is claiming that access to God through all the other religions of the world is counterfeit. That all other ways are in error, that all other ways are ignorant, that all other ways do not have the truth. This is confirmed throughout scripture. Acts 4 says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Confucius. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, there is only one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. Friends, we live in what is called a postmodern culture in which the common phrase of the day is whatever is good for you is good for you. Whatever is good for me is good for me. If Jesus works for you, that's great, but please don't push Jesus onto me. And don't you dare say that my way of religion is not better or is, is worse than your way of religion. Don't tell me Jesus is the only way. That is exclusive. It is offensive. It is intolerant. It is narrow-minded. Jesus claims to be the only way to God. And you know what? That truly is narrow-minded. That truly is exclusive and it truly is intolerant. But that doesn't mean it's untrue or unloving. To to carry on the illustration from earlier, if I told you, hey, uh, come over to my house for lunch, and uh, I, I did give you a GPS coordinate, and I said, you know, or I gave you my address, and you Googled it to get directions, you would say, you know what, there are hundreds of ways to get to your house from here. I could take a multitude of different roads to get there. Um, I could take my car. I could, I could, again, I could hike, or I could bike if I really wanted to. And you would say, see, there's all these ways to get to your house. So it is with God. There's all these ways to get to God's house, right? That's kind of what the world says, is that there's all of these ways to get there. There's no one specific way. But here's the thing. What if I told you that my home was the International Space Station? And I said, the only way that you can get to my home is to take a rocket. Would the postmodern say, well, that is narrow-minded. That's exclusive. That's intolerant. What if I want to take a canoe to the space station? What if I just want to jump up to the space station? What you say that I have to take a rocket, that's very intolerant of you. But that doesn't mean it's not true. You can try other methods, but you'll never get off the ground. The Father's house that Jesus prepares for us is not 
is not here on earth today. It is not even in outer space. It is otherworldly. And there is only one way to get there. And it's through Jesus Christ. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Why should our hearts not be troubled? Because our searching is done. We have found the truth in Christ, the true way back to heaven, back to the Father. Jesus Christ is the way. He is the truth. And finally, Jesus is the life. Before Jesus saves us, we're not only spiritually lost and Jesus shows us the way, which is himself. We are not only spiritually ignorant and Jesus shows us the truth, which is, again, himself. The Bible also says we are spiritually dead, and Jesus gives us the life, which is, again, himself. Just prior to this passage, when Lazarus dies, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That is his great promise, that that you will live if you believe in me, that I will give you life and give it to you eternally. And then he backs up that claim by raising Lazarus from the dead. Now the question is, how can Jesus give us life? How can he make spiritually dead people alive? Well, there's something very interesting in this passage, um, something that I don't recall seeing really kind of anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, We belabored this point that Jesus instructs us. He says, let not your hearts be troubled, right? This is what Jesus is saying to us. Let not your hearts be troubled. But if you look back to chapter 13, verse 21, it says something really interesting. In John 13, 21, it says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. What's so interesting about this is Jesus is telling us, let not your hearts be troubled. And yet just verses earlier, we read that Jesus' heart was troubled. And so what's going on here? Is Jesus contradicting himself? Is he saying, do as I do, not as I say? Or wait, do as I say, not as I do? Well, I think the answer is uncovered even the chapter earlier in John 12, verse 27. Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. He's talking about the cross. You see, in the New Testament, whenever Jesus' soul is troubled, it's always because he is fixing his eyes upon the cross. Jesus' soul is troubled because he's afraid of the one thing that we are called to fear in all the universe. He's fearing the wrath and the justice of God that we poured out upon the cross. So when Jesus says to us, let not your hearts be troubled, Yet he himself is troubled in his soul. It's because at the cross, he would take on our troubledness. Christ would be troubled by the wrath of God that we can say, let not our hearts be troubled because we have a great hope of heaven. Friends, according to the scriptures, if you do not trust in Christ as your savior, you should fear God as judge Because he will come and bring his punishment upon you. But if you trust in Christ as your Savior, if you have put on Christ, we need not fear God as judge. We fear him as Father, but we need not fear him as judge because Christ has already taken the wrath of God upon himself. At my old house, we lived across from an ice rink, and 
one day went over there with the kids and was trying to teach them how to ice skate. And down at the other end of the rink, there were some teenage boys playing hockey and mostly just taking slap shots at this goalie. And it was interesting because the goalie had on pads for his arms and for his chest and for his legs. He had, he had pads everywhere except for his face. And I'm thinking, what? Like, what's the purpose? I don't understand what's going on. But anyways, they were doing it and we left and didn't think much of it. Well, I came back a few days later and there was, there was blood all by the goal and trailing off the ice to the snow. And I don't know this for sure, but I'm assuming what happened is that he got one in the face, right? You see, the, the, the point of a mask is to absorb, right? To absorb the puck, to absorb the blast. But it only works if you put it on. Friends, Christ absorbs the wrath of God on our behalf if we put him on. If we are found in Christ, we must put on Christ by believing that he is the way and the truth and the life. If you have, if you put on Christ, we need not be troubled because Christ has taken on our ultimate trouble upon the cross. So why do we not need our hearts to be troubled? Why don't we need to be stuck in hopeless despair? Because God did not leave you lost in your sin. Jesus is the way to God. Because God has not left you ignorant of salvation. Jesus is the truth of God. Because God has not left you dead in your rebellion. Jesus is the life of God. Let me end with this. When I was a kid, I grew up in St. Louis. I was the youngest of five kids. And, uh, and my grandparents, my dad's parents, lived in Wellington, Ohio. And I had the sweetest grandma and the most amazing grandpa in the world. I mean, my, I remember my grandma, Grandma Helen, she was so sweet. One time, my son Corbin, when he was younger, he took his crock off and threw it at her head. And it hit her in the head, and she looked, and she just said, Oh, what a great arm he has. That's how sweet she was, okay? That's the way she looked at everything. She would tell us how handsome we are, tell my sisters how beautiful they are, and she was just, she was an awesome grandma. We loved being around here. My grandpa, my grandpa flew airplanes, and he had this huge barrel chest, and he'd wear like these, these big leather coats, these bomber coats, and he was just like a man's man. And so they were awesome grandparents. Well, every summer we would go to visit Grandma and Grandpa Cope, and we would have to travel 12 hours from St. Louis, Missouri, uh, to Wellington, Ohio. And that journey was often pretty difficult, uh, especially for me being the youngest of five children. Uh, because I was the one who was always squeezed into the middle seat. I was the one who had to sleep in the drawers at hotels. Uh, I was the one who always got the smallest ice cream cone. I was the one who got picked on the most. But it was all worth it because we were going to Grandma and Grandpa's house. And you see, the great thing about Grandma and Grandpa's house was not the toys that they had in the basement. It wasn't the great backyard that they had for playing wiffle ball. What made Grandma and Grandpa's house so great was that Grandma and Grandpa were there. How can Jesus say to us, in the midst of our suffering, let not your hearts be troubled? Because although in this journey of life there are serious troubles which we grieve we are destined for the Father's house, where there will be no more troubles, but only heavenly bliss of experiencing our great God for all eternity. This is our in eternal inheritance that allows Jesus to say in the midst of hardship, let not your hearts be troubled. 
Let's pray. Lord God, I confess that my heart is troubled so often. (laughs) Not just with major things, but even with little things, Lord. Lord God, help us to believe in the hope of heaven. Help us to believe in our Heavenly Father who has prepared a place for us, who, who has a home for us with many rooms, and you, our Savior, who has made a way. Lord God, help us to rest in you, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of pain. Let us remember, Lord, that this is a light, momentary affliction compared to the weight of glory for all eternity. Keep our eyes fixed upon the hope of heaven. And we pray this in your name. Amen.